All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hello, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. Today we're going to be discussing some of the key words that are often used in political discourse, not to advance discussion, but rather to shut it down. And what's interesting is that the words that we're going to talk about today, specifically we're going to talk about racism, we're going to talk about equality and equity, and we're going to talk about discrimination. And the reason why we've picked these terms is because they come up a lot whenever politics is being discussed. And the words in and of themselves, there's, there's nothing wrong with them, except that there is a colloquial or kind of a common understanding of some of these words, which is oftentimes inappropriate. In some cases, we're seeing words like racism be completely redefined. And that is causing huge problems with the ability of people to engage in actual productive discourse. And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to break down these words. What are their definitions? What do they mean? All right. And, and how do we recognize when that word is being used either outside of its definition? Uh, when is it being used in such a way where it's carrying a, a moral context that doesn't exist? Or when is that word just being completely redefined in order to favor one side of a debate over the other? Right. And, and again, the reason why this is so important is because if words don't have some sort of objective meaning, which we can all understand, well, then now they're just tools of manipulation. They're, they're not a mechanism to, in order to arrive at truth or reality. It's just a tool of, of manipulation. A lot of times in politics, it's a, it's a mechanism of political manipulation to shut people up that you don't agree with. All right. So let's, let's go ahead and get started. And let's start with racism because we see this all the time. I cannot tell you how many times I was sitting in the Virginia General Assembly where a particular topic came up. Maybe it was voting rights. Maybe it was marijuana. Maybe it was um, economics in general or taxes, where there was a racial component added onto every single argument. Now, nothing wrong with that in and of itself if racism is properly defined and being properly applied to the topic. Unfortunately, in many cases, it wasn't. It was being used as a tool to where if you didn't vote for a particular policy position, that was evidence of racism or evidence that you weren't concerned about racism, right? And again, this is a manipulation. So let's talk about the definition of racism, one that I think all of us typically understand and would associate ourselves with, all right? Racism, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, right? A belief that race is a fundamental determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race, right? You could also add an inferiority of a particular race. That's racism. Now, I, I think that's a fair definition, 
right? If, if you're someone that when you see the race of a particular person, you automatically assume things about them uh, that would lead you to come to a conclusion that they are inferior or superior, that's an element of racism, right? And, and within that definition, it can apply to anybody. Anybody can be guilty of having racist tendencies, racist thoughts, or engaging in what might be considered racist actions under this definition. It's, it's pretty objective. I think it's fair. It's easy to understand. All right, now let's look at the dictionary uh, definition under the Oxford Dictionary. It's, it starts out pretty similar, but then there's a change. It says, racism is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of their membership in a particular racial ethnic group. So far, so good. But then they add this, typically one that is a minority or marginalized. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, that's not really that big a deal. I would suggest to you that it is. And, and the reason why is not because there isn't an element of truth that a lot of times the people that experience racism tend to belong to groups that are either minorities or marginalized within a particular society. But when we start to define racism uh, based off of a particular group and their status within society, that gives way, that lends way to this argument that we're seeing more and more with things like critical race theory, where people are automatically put into categories as oppressed or oppressor. And so even if, if, so if you're a member of a majority group in a society where there's a minority group or a marginalized group or a group that's experiencing racism, your, your membership in the majority population automatically... Um, insinuates that you're somehow guilty of racism, right? And, and that's problematic because racism is a series of, of thoughts, ideas, and actions, all right? So what's, what's the problem with, with how racism is being redefined? Well, you, you've probably heard this before where they'll talk about a particular minority group or you'll hear, you'll hear someone say, well, that's reverse racism. And a lot of people have come out and said, well, there's no such thing as reverse racism. I, I think that's actually true. There's just racism. Right? There's just racism. But racism can affect anyone. But unfortunately, now we're being told that, well, no, if you're, if you're in a particular group and that group is the majority or that group is perceived to have uh, you know, more economic, political, or social power, all right, then you can be automatically associated with or guilty of either racism or benefiting from racism. Whereas if you're, a, if you're in a minority group, whether you've been marginalized or not, if you're in a minority group or if you're in a marginalized group and you display racist tendencies or you have racist feelings or you engage in racist activity toward the majority, we're now being told, well, that's not racism. Okay, that's problematic. Now, a lot of people will come back and say, well, no, it's not racism because they're marginalized. They, they've been... Um, they've been picked on or they've been victims of, of racism. And so their response to that or their feeling that the group that has been associated with racism toward them is somehow bad, that's not racism. Okay, here's where we need to be very, very careful on, on how we analyze this, right? And I'm, I'm going to give you a story. I, I had a, a friend I know from a church that I was attending and we were all talking about various issues, and the issue of Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the um, national anthem came up, right? And the majority of people in the conversation were either white or Hispanic. And then there was, there was one lady who was black, and she said, well, I actually, I actually understand what he's doing. I agree with it. And everybody else was kind of shocked. And they, and they proceeded to go in and explain that, well, no, that, that the American flag is a symbol of all of us, and people fought and died for it, et cetera, et cetera. 
And at no point were we just sitting back and just listening to her reasoning. And so I said, okay, let's just stop for a second. Can, can you explain to me why you associate with that? Well, it turns out this woman who, who was older, she remembers Jim Crow. She remembers forced segregation. And it's not as if she saw every white person as being evil or mean or somehow associated with racism, but every experience of racism that she had gone through was perpetrated by a white person. And so obviously that sort of experience caused her to be a little bit more skeptical and to appreciate what Colin Kaepernick was doing. Now, Again, personally, I don't agree with what Colin was doing. I, I don't think it was the, the appropriate outworking of what he was trying to achieve, all right? Now, again, we can debate that all day long, but the important part of the conversation was, was to understand that her frustration and her being able to associate with what Colin Kaepernick was doing didn't mean she was racist, all right? It just meant that she had experiences that were informing her decision and informing her perspective. Right? And that's a healthy conversation to have. Right? When somebody has been the victim of racism and they have been repeatedly victimized by somebody that looks a certain way, it is not necessarily racist for them to be cautious or, or them to have their guard up when they're around people that look that way. Now, if they allow that to manifest itself into racist actions, or if they allow that to manifest themselves into saying that because a white person was racist against me, therefore all white people are racist, that's problematic. And what we need to be very careful of is this. If we start redefining it based off of who has power, instead of the actual definition and the actual ideas behind racism, we create this two-tier system where now if you are in a minority group, you're now incapable of racism, right? And I don't think that makes any sense. And let me give you an illustration for this. If I were to take the grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and I was to put him into a foreign country for which he was a minority population, maybe even a marginalized population, would he be any less racist? No, he's still a racist. Why? Because of what he believes about the nature of race. That's what needs to determine whether or not someone is racist. That's what needs to determine whether or not a particular policy is racist. Simply because a policy can be ill-applied also doesn't make the policy itself racist. Let me give you an example of this. We see this issue coming up in Georgia right now where all of a sudden the you know, voter ID laws and certain regulations around turning in absentee ballots and things like that are now considered voter suppression. Voter suppression was largely directed at black Americans for a large portion of this country's history, especially under the Jim Crow South. And so there's this easy connection that's being made where it's like, okay, this is a requirement with respect to voting. Then they put it in the category of voter suppression. Then they put voter suppression in the category of racism, right? Now, you can, you can understand, given American history, why someone might make that connection. But the problem is, is that we're not actually applying the definition of racism. Because if you're going to conclude that what Georgia just did is racist, then you would have to conclude that any other state which has similar or even stricter voting laws is also racist. So New York, California, right? Nobody is accusing those states of being racist. Why not? Because they're not applying an equal standard across the board. And applying an equal standard is very important. Now, let me caveat something here. It is true 
that when we're combating racism, we obviously want to combat that racism, which can have, I mean, we, we have limited resources, right? So we want to combat all racism, right? We would love to eliminate racist ideas and tendencies from our thinking. Uh, I fully believe that. Again, my, my Christian faith informs me that every human being has inherent value because they're created in the image of God. And for me to suggest, or for anyone to suggest, that someone is somehow inferior or superior based off of their race is not only wrong and unscientific, I would argue that it's also immoral and evil. Right? So we want to combat racism. The key to combating it is first, properly define it and understand that anybody can be guilty of racism, regardless of their experience, regardless of their, their race, regardless of their power structure. Anybody can be guilty of racism. By the same token, right? anybody can also participate in combating racism or not being racist. Right? Anybody is capable of that. You are, you are not fixed based off of your race. To believe otherwise is a form of racism. Now. The reason why it's gained in popularity, this idea that if you're, if you're part of a minority group, you can't be racist is because the concept is, is that if you're in a minority group or more specifically, you're in a marginalized group, then you don't have the power necessary to carry out your racist tendencies in the form of policy or economics or society, right? And so because you don't have the power to carry out your racism, you're not racist. That is ridiculous. That is absolutely ridiculous. You're either racist or you're not. Now, I will admit this. If you're a racist and you're the prime minister, or if you're a racist and you're the CEO of a huge company, then your ability to carry out racist ideas or tendencies is significantly higher and therefore it is a significantly greater threat. And so as we're looking at where are we going to direct our attention, again, if it's some you know, idiot in their mom's basement you know, writing a little manifesto and they never do anything with it, that person is a racist, but they don't pose much of a threat. By the same token, if they're the leader of a large organization or a country or they have a great deal of social influence, that is a greater threat. So what we need to distinguish is the difference. Racism is based off of how you view other races. Your ability to carry out your racist ideas is more determined based off of your power within a particular society. So it, it makes perfect sense to say that because this is a greater threat, that is what we're going to address right now, or that's what we're going to spend a majority of our time addressing. But it doesn't make any sense to say that because someone has more power, they're therefore more racist, or because someone has less power, they're less racist, right? So it's really important that we keep that definition, and it's really important that we evenly apply it across the board, because if we don't, we're going to get into the sort of situation that we see right now where all of a sudden people are being categorized based off of either their race or their perceived position within society. Oh, because you're this color, you have this privilege, and therefore uh, you've benefited from you know, systematic racism, so you're either a racist or you're inherently part of the problem, or you can't possibly, you can't possibly be unracist or anti-racist, right? Again, I think that's just another form of racism. It might be perfectly acceptable to say you have not had the same experience as someone that has been a victim of racism, especially racism that we experience in this country under things like Jim Crow laws, where now all of a sudden, based off of the color of your skin, determines where you sit on the bus. It determines where you can go to school. It determines whether or not you can get a concealed carry permit, right? 
it is absolutely true that somebody that's never experienced that cannot share the same experience with understanding what they're, but they can still recognize it as being bad and evil and fight against it. And so it, it's really important that when we look at the term racism, don't be, don't be scared by these people that, that throw it around without properly defining it. Someone accuses something of being racist, ask them why it's racist, right? If someone accuses a policy of being racist, why is it racist? So let me give you an example of this on the policy perspective. Voter ID. Voter ID is not inherently racist. Now, can it be applied in a racist manner? Sure. If, if you've got the person that's responsible for checking the IDs at the DMV and they don't like um, Asian people, and so they end up telling the Asian person, well, this is the wrong ID or you got to go back or they misfile their paperwork. They have now applied voter ID laws in a racist manner. Does that mean voter ID laws are racist? No. A voter ID law is racist if, like when we saw with the you know, Jim Crow laws and things like that, if, if, if it is specifically targeted toward a particular race, right, and that is written into the code, that is racist. If it is applied in a racist manner, that is not necessarily the fault of the code or the policy, it's the fault of the person applying it. And so from a policy perspective, it's really important that we make sure that when we craft legislation or laws, we do ensure that it's not disproportionately affecting a particular group. But it's really important that we make that distinction between what is racism, what is not racism, what is racist because it is written into the law versus what is potentially racist because of the way it's been applied. And, and if we're not reviewing all of that fairly and objectively, then we're going to get to a point where theoretically you couldn't have any laws. I, I think it's interesting that the same Democrats that think that a voter ID law is inherently racist, even though there's nothing written into the code to make it so, don't think it's inherently racist to talk about having a vaccine passport. Or the same Democrats that think it's inappropriate to require a photo ID of everyone want more gun control laws, even though gun control laws in and of themselves are not necessarily racist, but were they applied in racist ways in the Jim Crow South? Absolutely. So that's the distinction that we need to make. First, properly defined racism. Whether or not you're a racist is not determined by how much power you have in order to carry out racist tendencies. It is determined exclusively by how you feel about other races. If you believe that somebody's race determines their inferiority or their superiority, that's a problem. That's racist. Okay? Now, you might not be inherently racist, but you, you might be um, ignorant of other people's experiences. That's fine. That presents you an opportunity. That doesn't mean you're racist. It just presents you an opportunity to learn more about somebody else's perspective. Right? And then when it comes to policy, we should always look at policy from, from two angles. First of all, if the policy is inherently racist, which is to say that the code is written in such a way to where it is specifically designed to benefit or punish a particular race, you can make a claim that that is a racist law. Right? If it's not written in such a way, but the people that are applying the law do so in a racist manner, there's one of two things that you can address by that. You can either look at the efficacy of the law itself and determine whether or not you think it's appropriate, or you can punish the people, and you should punish the people, that are deliberately applying a law in a racist manner. All right? So that's, that's, the, that's the first term I wanted to go over today, racism, and how important it is to properly define it, recognize that anybody can be guilty of it, recognize that your power structure does not determine how racist you are, it just determines how big a threat your racism potentially is. All right, so the common objective for all of us should be to combat racism, all right? But we don't do that when we misdefine it and then misapply it 
in order to treat anybody that disagrees with us on a particular policy position as if they're somehow evil or bad or a secret tool of, of racist entities. And unfortunately, that's what's going on right now. And, it, and it, it creates this environment where more and more people want to disengage from the conversation or people start to have negative feelings about someone because they've now been a victim of racism. They've now been told that they are a certain way or that they uh, believe a certain way be based off of the color of their skin. And the danger of that is you get to a point where people say, well, if this is the game we're going to play, then they're going to play it to win. Well, that's a game. That's a strategy where no one wins. If we really want to judge people based off of their individual character, as Dr. Martin Luther King asked us to, then it's going to take honest definitions of things like racism and honest dialogue in order to facilitate greater understanding. All right, so that's racism. Let's talk about another one here. Okay, equality. And with this, we're also going to talk about equity because the word equity is popping up a lot right now. So let's, let's talk about what, what is equality. All right, equality, real simple definition. It's the state of being equal, especially in status and rights. And, and they also had opportunities, which that's, that's a little bit different, but let's go into that. Um, here's what I think about that is interesting about the way that the term equality is used. When I walk in and I'm talking to a room full of civic students, so I, I get invited to high schools and in youth organizations and college campuses all the time, and one of the things I'll ask people is, who here thinks equality is a good idea? And everyone will raise their hand. And I'll say, okay, great. So you believe that society should treat a doctor the same way we treat a rapist? And like, well, no. Oh, okay, so you don't believe in equality. And the reason why I point this out is because the term equality gets spoken about a lot as if it has an inherent moral meaning. It doesn't, all right? Equality, in order for it to have a moral meaning, it requires context, okay? So for two things to be equal in a mathematical sense is pretty easy to understand. For people to have a, 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 good, a good objective is equality before the law. So should society treat a doctor the same way that we treat a rapist? No, but if both of those people end up coming before a court of law and they're accused of something, should the law treat each person equally, right? We haven't determined this person's a racist yet uh, or a uh, rapist yet. All right, should, should the law treat those people equally? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think there's any problem with that. That is a form of equality that is beneficial to society at large because all of us want to be treated, hopefully, based off of, again, the content of our character, our actions. We don't want... Um, before, when we go before a court of law or we don't want the law in general to be written in such a way to where it punishes us, not based off of our activities, but it punishes us based off of things like our race or our gender or our religious status or, or whatever it might be or our economic status, right? We don't want the law to treat us differently based off of those things. So achieving something like equality before the law is generally speaking a good idea. Now, when we talk about the term equity, a lot of times, uh, th there's, a, there's a positive use for the term, and I would say a negative application of this term. So a lot of people say, now, well, equality is not good enough, right? If, if, if everybody has equality before the law, but one person starts off at a, at a competitive disadvantage and one person you know, starts off life born into a wealthy family, well, they may be equal before the law, but they don't have an equal chance when it comes to you know, seeking out opportunities. And that's technically true. And so people start to shift to this idea of equity, which is to say that um, 
well, I'll just give you an example. This is from the Milken Institute School of Public Health. And, and I'm going to try to, they, they draw an illustration. And so I'm going to articulate the illustration for you. They show four pictures. And in each picture, there's an apple tree and there's two people. So in the first picture, you have an apple tree and it's leaning way to the left, right? And all the apples are on one side of the tree. So the person on that side of the tree has access to apples and the person on the other side of the tree doesn't have any access to apples. And they say, that's inequity or that's inequality. Fair enough. The second picture shows the same tree, but now both people have the same size ladder. Well, okay, and they, they call this equality, right? Because both people have the same size ladder, but obviously the person that where the tree is leaning toward them and there's more apples, they still have a better opportunity, whereas the person on the other side, yeah, they might be closer to the apples, but they can't actually get it. Then they have the third picture, same tree, but now the ladder on the other side is higher. And so now that person is able to actually get some of the apples as well. They call that equity. Then in the fourth picture, the tree has been straightened and there's an equal number of apples on both sides and they call that justice. Now, as you're thinking about this example, right? It, it seems fairly straightforward, right? We can understand that. Not everybody, in, in equality of, of opportunity or equality before the law doesn't mean that everyone's going to have the same opportunity to pursue things. And so the argument is, is that, well, in order to achieve equity or in order to achieve justice, we need to allocate more resources to other people that don't have those same opportunities. Let me give you a quote here from Paula Dressel, and this was um, from the Race Matters Institute. And what she said was, the route to achieving equity will not be accomplished through treating everyone equally. It will be achieved by treating everyone justly according to their circumstances. Now, on face value, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with that. But here's, here's the problem that we have. When they say, when she says, treating everyone justly according to their circumstances, that's where you get into some dangerous territory because how do you propose to do that? How do you propose to achieve equity or what some people call equality of outcomes? There have been societies that have tried to achieve greater equality of outcomes, and there's been a couple different ways that they do it, right? In freer societies, what they do is they have higher taxes on people that make more money or have more property, and then they redistribute that wealth to people that have less, right? In Marxist societies, they tried to eliminate class altogether and so there, there was a lot more state intervention into what you could own, what you could do, right? And that was, that was their attempt at achieving greater equality of outcomes or, or greater equity. Here's the issue that we have to consider. Because if we want justice and we want people to be able to pursue opportunities, we're going to have to recognize some things. I believe that people are inherently equal in the sense that everybody has inherent equal moral value. So just your, your very, the very nature of you being a human being conveys upon you a certain value which cannot be taken away. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's actions are equally valuable. Again, going back to the doctor and the rapist, I don't think anybody thinks that a rapist's actions are as good or as valuable as a doctor's actions when they're saving somebody's life, right? We don't look at those two actions as being um, equally just or equally appropriate or equally beneficial or valuable. The question becomes is that when you have people making different decisions for their lives and those decisions cause different things to take place, different things to transpire, there are different consequences for your actions, whether they be good consequences or bad consequences. The moment you start to treat 
everybody's position in, in life as if it is purely a result of circumstances beyond their control, you now get into a situation where, and it's typically politicians, are the ones that are now deciding who will get what, not based off of how valuable their actions were, but simply based off of their current economic status or the sort of things that they could have potentially been victimized before or things that they didn't have access to. And this has gotten so ridiculous that there was actually, I, I believe it was a, a sociologist that said that parents reading to their children are giving their children an unfair advantage over parents that don't read to their children. Well, how exactly do you propose to adjudicate that? Because if your idea of equity in that point is, well, these parents should stop reading to their children. Or if your idea of equity at that point is, these parents should be forced to read to other people's children. Or because these people are going to do better because they had a stable family life and they were set up for economic success, therefore we should tax them in order to help the people that were not set up for success. Okay, in that case, you may do a better job of achieving equality of outcome, but you have not achieved justice. Because what you're essentially doing at that point is, an, is a great injustice in two ways. The first injustice is that you're now punishing someone that did something good or something valuable because somebody else didn't, right? You, you are punishing the good behavior and you are essentially rewarding the bad behavior. So that, that's, that's, in, that's unjust in and of itself. But there's a second injustice here. Because you have punished good behavior and now you have rewarded bad behavior, what have you encouraged and what have you discouraged? So the second injustice that has been done here is not just the fact that you took away from somebody else or you punished somebody for doing something good. You have now disincentivized them from doing good things in the future. You've incentivized them to do bad things or destructive things in the future. And so if the only way that you can see to achieve greater equity in society is by going through a process of forced redistribution or punishing productive behavior, then you're not going to be doing society as a whole any sort of justice. You're not going to be making it better in the future. Now, if you want to make a moral argument that those people that uh, did grow up in a stable family, that were able to get a job, that those people should be willing to help people, especially those who through no fault of their own, they, maybe they grew up in a in, a, in an abusive uh, household, and they are trying to do the best they have with, with the tools that they have available to, is it a good thing for other people to come alongside and help them? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think that builds a very, very strong sense of community. The problem is, is that when we delegate that responsibility from us as individuals, and we hand it over to politicians, we no longer get a system of redistribution because that's also, you can voluntarily redistribute your wealth to help somebody out, right? That's voluntary redistribution. When we get coercive redistribution or state-imposed redistribution, politicians are not necessarily moving money from one place to another place based off of what achieves the best results. They're moving money from one place to another place based off of what helps them get reelected. So there's a perverse incentive structure there. And again, I've, I've seen this in my own life. There were times in my life, especially when my wife and I were very young, starting out, not making a lot of money, where we needed help. Now, we could have gotten that help from the government. We qualified. We chose not to do that. But we had a structure of family and friends and, and members from our church that were willing to help us out during those times. 
And here's what I saw as the difference. A lot of times when it's a faceless bureaucrat, when, it, when it's some faraway bureaucrat handing out other people's money to somebody that wants it or needs it, they end up talking about it as if they're owed that money. As if because of their circumstances or because they don't have as much as they would like or as much as they need, that they're somehow owed something from society. No, you are not. That was one of the things I was very cognizant of at times in my life when I needed help. None of my friends or family who helped me, I was not owed that help. They did not owe it to me. They sacrificed because they cared about me. And that engendered in me a, a feeling of gratitude, not entitlement. It engendered me a sense of responsibility to help somebody else out when they were in need because I knew what it was like to be in that situation and I understood the value of someone coming in and helping me when I needed it and so now it's incumbent upon me to help someone else when they need it. That's what builds community and society. All right, This idea of politicians taking from somebody that... that did everything right, didn't do anything wrong. I'm not talking about somebody that you know, got their money through ill-gotten gains or stole from somebody else or robbed somebody. But they did, they did everything right, they were successful, and now we're gonna take from them because they were successful. Not because they did something wrong, because we're gonna take it from them because it's there. It's the old adage of, I forget which uh, you know, famous mob guy they asked, why do you rob banks? He goes, well, because that's where the money is. Right? If your only moral justification for taking from someone to give to somebody else is they have more and they have less, that is not just. And we should not confuse it for being just. It may achieve greater equity, but we can have equity tomorrow. Just take everybody, steal all other stuff, put them in a prison cell. You all got the same bed, you all got the same cell, you all got the same access to amenities. You are far, that is a far more equitable environment or equal environment. But it's not one I think any of us would want to subject ourselves to. So we, we need to understand that with respect to the government's role, equality before the law is about as good as it's going to get. Because anytime the government starts to impose a particular method of redistribution or starts to provide certain advantages to people um, based off of either their, you know, exclusively off of economic status without taking into account any of the decisions that went into an economic status, they end up being enablers of oftentimes destructive behavior. Now, understand, I am not in any, any way insinuating that we should not help people in need. I believe I have a moral obligation to help people in need. That is why my wife and I choose to do so. But I think not only do we achieve greater community benefits when people take it upon themselves to love and care for their neighbor without being coerced to do so. We don't just achieve more effective results, more efficient results. We also achieve more just results than we will ever get out of a system where politicians take it upon themselves to steal from one group in order to give to another group, even if their intentions are noble. There is a whole host of perverse incentives which are created through that mechanism. And so when we talk about equality, right, let's define our terms. What is equality and what are we trying to achieve through equality? Both at, from a policy perspective with respect to government, but also with respect to us as a society, us as individuals interacting with one another. All right, equality before the law, great. But we also understand that people are going to have different talents. People have different objectives in life. 
So if somebody wants to be a doctor and somebody over here wants to be a school teacher, that's going to result in very different economic categories in most situations. That does not mean that the person that makes less money doing what they chose to do is somehow a victim of injustice. All right? Inequity, inequality does not necessarily mean injustice. It can, and when it does, we should fight against that, but we should be very careful to not conflate the two. Right? So don't let anybody try to push you. Again, somebody brings up, are you for equality? You should always come back and ask them, equality of what? What do you mean by that? Right? Are you for equity? Equity of what? What do you mean by that? If, if by equality you mean equality before the law, absolutely. If equality you mean that everybody should have an opportunity to live their life and use their talents the best way they possibly can to, to you know, pursue happiness, absolutely. as long as they're not infringing on the liberties of someone else, absolutely. By equity, what do you mean? Well, if, if you mean that in society we treat people justly and that we also take into account their circumstances, absolutely. But if by equality you mean that the government now has to tip the scale in favor of one person over the other, or if by equity you mean that we now have to punish productive behavior in order to reward unproductive behavior, then no. Because I don't believe that achieves justice. All it does is creates new victims who later down the road are now going to be asking when the government is going to tip the scale on their behalf. And it becomes a, a self-perpetuating cycle. All right, let's talk about the third one. Discrimination. Okay, this is one of my favorite terms to discuss. And this is another example of when I will go to a room full of students and I will say, who here is against discrimination? Everyone will raise their hand, right? Because we've been taught to assign a moral meaning to discrimination. And then I'll point out to them, I said, the very fact that you raised your hand, you engaged in a discrimination at that point. And they all look at me kind of confused. I'm like, well, to understand the proper definition of discrimination, we have to understand that discrimination in its basis form is to simply make decisions or to make judgments about things. So literally everything you do is an act of discrimination. The fact that I chose to be on this podcast right now as opposed to doing something else with my time, like mowing the lawn, I discriminated against mowing the lawn in order to do this because this conveyed a greater value to me. Now, was that act of discrimination somehow evil or immoral? No. Right? When we talk about someone having discriminating tastes, is that evil or immoral? No. So discrimination in and of itself is not, it has no moral connotation. It requires context in order to have a moral connotation. So if you are discriminating against someone based off of their skin color, that certainly has a moral context. If you're discriminating against someone based off of you gave two people a job to do and one person did the job well and one person did the job poorly, that's also a form of discrimination. Is there something wrong with that? No, we couldn't even, we could not even effectively interact with one another if we weren't able to discriminate between different actions and activities taking place. So it's, it's really a moral question of how we apply discrimination. How is discrimination properly applied and how is discrimination improperly applied? So I'm going to talk a little bit about Thomas Sowell, um, which again, I could talk about him in every episode because he's brilliant. But in, in his book, Discrimination and Disparities, he really tackles this issue. And he breaks down discrimination into kind of three categories. 
the first discrimination is, is what I just described, right? It's the whole discriminating taste. It's the idea that I'm going to judge an individual based off of their actions, off of their character. I'm not going to um, allow prejudice, you know, prejudging about someone based off of other criteria. I'm going to take the time to get to know them, to observe their actions in order to make a judgment call about the sort of character that person possesses, right? That's discrimination 1A, okay? Then he talks about discrimination number two. Discrimination number two is what we, what we are taught to think of when we hear the word discrimination, especially within political or sociological discourse, right? We're taught to think of it as prejudice or racism or sexism or any other ism that you, you want out there, right? That's, that's the automatic Im image that is conjured up in our mind when we hear someone saying that we need to fight discrimination. And I, I had a perfect example of this because I was carrying a bill and I had a reporter ask me, they're like, well, what do you say to the people that this is a pro-discrimination bill? And I pointed out to the reporter, I said, every piece of legislation is a pro-discrimination piece of legislation because at, a, at its fundamental level, we are changing something in the law. So we are discriminating against how the law currently exists versus how we want the law to look in the future. I said, I think the real question is, are we fighting bigotry? See, because the word bigotry, just like the word racism, that has an inherent moral meaning all by itself, right? The, the term bigotry, the term racism comes with its own context of a moral nature, right? It is never good to behave in a racist manner. It is never good to behave in a bigoted manner, and both racism and bigotry require discrimination, right? But it's important for us to define our terms, right? Now, I want to talk about the third level that Thomas Sowell talks about, and that's, he describes it as 1B. So 1A is like discriminating taste, or, or again, we could call it proper discrimination. Uh, discrimination 2 is improper or bigoted or prejudicial discrimination. Discrimination 1B is tricky. Um, and the example he uses, I, I think, is a, is a valuable one because it demonstrates how somebody can do something in such a way to where they're forced to make generalizations, not because they want to, but because they don't have the information or the time available to make a more informed decision. So for instance, if you're gonna hire someone and you have two applicants, and one of those applicants has you know, a, a great deal of credentials and the other applicant does not, that's easy. You, you hire the one with more credentials in order to do the job. But let's say you have two people that walk into the room and one person belongs to an organization um, or, or a group that you don't necessarily subscribe to. Um, and the other person doesn't belong to that group. All right. Now you're forced. Now you have not judged that individual. You know, that, that person that, that is associated with an organization um, or associated with, you know, whatever it is, you've not had opportunity to judge that person as an individual. And you might not have time to judge them as an individual. You have to make a hiring decision and you need to make your hiring decision based off of who's going to be the most appropriate to do the job. And so all things being equal, you say, well, I, I don't know how this individual would perform on this job, but I don't like this particular aspect or this particular aspect conveys an additional risk. And so I'm going to hire the other person. Okay, so that's, that's 1B. That's, yes, that's a form of discrimination. Is it, is it proper discrimination in the way that we talk about discriminating taste or judging each individual by their character? No, it isn't. 
But is it also just purely racial discrimination? Um, no, not necessarily, right? Because what it is is they're taking into account other data that might be relevant. So one of the um, one of the examples Thomas Sowell uses for this is, you know, in, especially in early American history, let's say you had two Irish applicants and one Irish applicant was Irish Catholic and the other was Irish Protestant. Now, you don't have a problem with Irish Catholics, you don't have a problem with Irish Protestants, but you know that the majority of your workforce is Irish Protestant. And if you hire an Irish Catholic, well, because of those additional, you know, issues, that that can cause problems within your workforce, so you choose to hire the Irish Protestant. Right now, did you engage in a form of discrimination? Yes. Did you get a chance to know each individual? It could be that the Irish Catholic is, is a great worker and does a great job. Okay, no, you didn't have time to look at all that. You had to make a decision based off of the information that you had. And so you use what we call in economics a heuristic, basically a shortcut. And you said this factor, even though it might not be entirely fair to this individual, this factor does affect how I'm going to be able to run my business. And so therefore, I'm going to choose to exclude it. Now, that can very easily fall into, now, if you let that go, that can very easily fall into in discrimination part two, where now you start to say that, well, I've got a predominantly white workforce, and so I don't want a person of another color. Okay, now, that, now that's inappropriate. That's immoral, right? So it, it becomes this, this really problematic way of, of, of using discrimination. Um, I'll give you another example of this from a hiring perspective. Let's say the government passes a law which says that you must give a, a woman who has a baby a certain degree of maternity, paid maternity leave and you have to keep their job. You have to do it, right? So if you hire that woman and if she gets pregnant and then she has a baby, you have to give her six weeks maternity leave. You can't give her job to somebody else. She gets it when she comes back. Okay, that's now the law. And now you have two people applying for a job. One's a man, one's a woman. You have nothing against women. However, Hiring her means there's going to be an additional requirement on you to provide six weeks paid leave, even though the work is not going to get done while that person is on maternity leave. What sort of incentive structure have you just created for the employer? Now, you might have think that you've helped the woman because you've given her paid maternity leave. But if that's also used in order to prevent her getting the job in the first place because it, it is now associated with an additional cost on the employer, you might have put her at a competitive disadvantage within the marketplace as a result of this. And so that's why we need to be very, very careful on how we look at discrimination within society. Okay, so let's, let's do a quick recap. Discrimination one, no moral context, right? There, there's absolutely nothing wrong with discriminating based off of actions or character, right? Nothing wrong with that inherently. Um, Discrimination too, where you're prejudging someone based off of their race or their gender or things like that, that is wrong, right? That is, that, 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 that can fall very easily into an amoral or an immoral, or an immoral characteristic. And then that, that section of 1B, that's the part where government has to be very, very careful because a lot of times the government will pass laws and their objective is to help a particular person. But then when that person goes into the marketplace or that person goes into a particular environment, you've now put them at a competitive disadvantage because you put you forced an employer to make other considerations than they otherwise would have if you would have allowed them to just make a conscientious choice, right? So it's important that, again, when somebody asks you, are you for discrimination or are you against discrimination? What do you mean by that, right? And then use these three categories, 
right? Discrimination one, discrimination one B, discrimination two. Because that, that actually gives us a, a more comprehensive look at what it is that we're trying to discuss. And it, it helps facilitate a very good conversation on how policy affects people within education, within, um, you know, within the economy, uh, within our courts, et cetera, right? We, we, again, we want to combat bigoted forms of discrimination, but we don't want to use our language so loosely that all of a sudden we're demonizing a, a necessary behavior within society, the ability to uh, determine and to you know, judge between actions. We don't, we don't want to lump that in with bigotry and persecution and racism, okay? And that's really important. Um, there's a couple books I want to I recommend here. If you want to do some more follow-up reading on this, because there's a lot of other terms that we could use. Diversity is another one that I, I usually bring up uh, because people always say, well, you know, diversity is our strength. Well, diversity of what? Diversity of skin color? Again, Thomas Sowell has this great quote where he says, the next time a college university president tells you how much they care about diversity, ask them how many Republicans are in their sociology department. Right, because diversity is not simply diversity of sex or diversity of uh, skin color or diversity of ethnicity. Diversity is also diversity of ideas, of thought processes, of approaches, right? And, and diversity can be a very, very good thing. Diversity can also be a bad thing. One of the examples I like to use is that if you had a room full of honest, hardworking people, how many murderers would you add into that room for the sake of diversity? Well, hopefully the answer would be none, right? So uh, again, don't allow people to bash you over the head with terms like equality, diversity, and discrimination without them properly defining what they mean by it. Because if, if, you, allow that, if you allow that terminology to go without properly defining your terms, you are going to find the argument going off in two very different directions. You're not going to be able to dialogue with people. You're just going to be talking around each other. But you will be shocked if you take that initial step when somebody brings up one of these key issues and you ask them, what do you mean by that? And then you provide examples that we've provided here and say, well, what about this circumstance? Are you against that? Are you for this? Once you've defined those terms, you will be amazed at the quality of the discussion that you can actually have with someone and the levels that you will agree on, right? The levels that you will agree on in order to achieve a greater understanding of truth and hopefully to achieve greater justice, right? So back to the two books. If you want to read more on this, Discriminations and Disparities by Thomas Sowell is excellent. This is where I got the whole 1A, 1B, 2 on discrimination. He discusses that in this book. He does an excellent job. I highly recommend it. Thomas Sowell, uh, Discrimination and Disparities. He also goes into a, a lot of really good research on whether or not discrimination is the best way to, and, and when he's talking about discrimination, he's talking about you know, government-imposed discrimination or, or, or racist laws or things like that. Is that the best way to explain inequities in society? Or are there other factors which come into play which feature more prominently? So you're never going to see Thomas Sowell saying, oh yeah, discrimination doesn't matter. No, he's not saying that at all. Um, he's saying discrimination does matter, but we need to properly define it. And then what we need to do is we need to look at individual behaviors and actions. We need to look at policies based off of what the stated intentions were and what the results were in order to decide whether or not the sort of bigoted discrimination, which gets bandered about so much in politics, is actually the best way to explain some disparities that we see in society that we would like to, we'd like to address. So get that one by Thomas Sowell. The other one is The Tyranny of Clichés by Jonah Goldberg. Now, he actually wrote this, I think it was in 2012. Um, so gosh, I'm 10 years old now. 
Um, but it's amazing because he talks about certain topics. He talks about some of the things we discussed here. He mentions um, other terms that are commonly used in political discourse. And I love that title, The Tyranny of Clichés, because it really, try, it really expresses well what I'm, I'm trying to convey here is that when these words are used inappropriately or when a, a moral context is assigned to a word that does not have an inherent moral context, Again, it doesn't foster conversation and debate. It shuts it down. And th that has been, I think, very, very frustrating for a lot of conservatives where we're told that if we don't agree with critical race theory, well, it's because of your white fragility. Or it's just because I don't see the evidence for it, right? Or I don't, I don't think it's a good evidence-based approach, or I don't think it's going to achieve the results. And, and Jonah Goldberg and Tyranny of Clichés does a great job of showing how a lot of these words and terms are commonly manipulated or used unfairly in such a way as to, again, shut down debate. And so Jonah Goldberg, Tyranny of Clichés, highly recommend it. Um, very good book. Uh, once again, I want to thank you for joining us on, on Making the Argument. Um, also, go over, check out the Why Minutes. Uh, we've got some great new episodes coming out. We drop a new one every Wednesday. You, we have also got our website up there now, thewhyminutes.com. Please check that out as well. Also, Again, cannot thank you enough. We had a great month in March. Great, best month ever of the podcast. Uh, we're growing in numbers. We're growing in subscribers. If you get a minute, go on there. Give us a five-star review. Write us a, a quick review, just really quick review. We, we've got over 200 reviews right now. The more reviews we get, all right, the, the more ratings we get, the more you know, Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, and YouTube and all these other organizations, the more they push it out to other people. So if you think the ideas here are valuable, there's two ways that you can help us get the word out. One, you can watch and share it yourself, but two, spend one minute and write us that review. It really helps out a lot. Once again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time on Making the Argument. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.